UX Podcast Episode 161. Listening to UX Podcast coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, Pat Axbom. And James Roy Lawson. With listeners in 170 countries from Costa Rica to Botswana. Recently, well, the other week, we um, caught up with Susan and Guthrie Weinschenk yep. um, while they were here in Stockholm um, hosting their workshop, How to Get People to Take Action. Yep. We crashed their hotel room and sat down with them. So together, uh, Susan and Guthrie are the Team W, and they offer like decades of experience in, I'm going to read this, uh, brain and behavioral science, user experience, behavioral economics, and econometrics. So, and they had a, a workshop, uh, very hands-on, where uh, people learn the recent research on decision-making and motivation and, and how to apply that to teams, products, and services. <laughs> You were um, you're here in town because you've been running a, a workshop. I think you're in a little workshop tour around Scandinavia, mm-hmm. um, which, um, if I've got it written correctly, um, how to make people take action. Tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in the workshop. It's kind of our version of behavioral design. Okay. Uh, or the latest term we started using is behavioral architecture design, I think. I love behavioral psychology and behavioral science. Um, so I'm kind of the behavioral psychology part. And Guthrie has a degree in economics. So mm. as well as he's a lawyer, so watch out. That's what oh, I okay. say. We, we like combining the behavioral economics research with the behavioral mm. psychology research and then applying that to design. And it's interesting because, you know, normally when we do workshops, we're talking about the design of digital products, you Mm, know, websites or apps or software. But we, I I gave the the class the opportunity yesterday of expanding it because when they worked on their exercise, their case study, I said, you can pick a product, a service, digital, you could pick a physical space. Mm -hmm. One of the groups picked the bar outside. Picked the bar right outside the window of the the room we were in. Mm, So again, the idea being that these principles, right, the science that we know, which combines, you know, the behavioral economics and psychology and neuroscience, you know, you can apply that to design anything, anything, if it involves humans. So um, that was it was kind of fun to see the different different situations that people used it in. We kind of have like our standard behavioral. It's really more of a behavioral psychology uh, workshop, which is uh, what, what would you call it? The, the science of motivation, perhaps? Yeah, or designing for designing engagement. Designing for engagement. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we gave that in Stockholm last year and we didn't want to give the same one because we thought people would mm-hmm. come. And, and so we redid a whole bunch of stuff and came up with new stuff to some just with some of the new research that I've been doing in behavioral economics. And then, of course, no one at the um, workshop we just did was, was there the last one? year. So we could have just used the old one and <laughs> yeah. saved ourselves a bunch of work. But now we have it all this fun. great we new material. All, yeah, yeah. We, we got to try out all our new stuff. <laughs> So it seems to me that people always seem to be so fascinated with the subject. What is it they really want to learn? Is it how to manipulate people? You know, I don't know that people really know 
when they come to a workshop like that? I mean, I think, you know, designing for action, design so people can take mm. action, mm. Uh, design so you encourage people to take a particular action. I think that sounds interesting to people. Mm. I don't think they've really thought about it at, in terms of, oh, let's manipulate people mm. to do something. Mm. Of course, we have that conversation when we're there and that's how we always end yeah. up, you know, or lit now we start talking about the ethics of it. Mm. Yeah, but I don't know that people come in thinking that, oh, mm. I want to learn how to yeah. manipulate people. I think people, you know, they're de- whatever they're designing, whatever they're responsible for, they want to know, you know, how would I use any of the science, the neuroscience, the behavioral economic science, the psychology to design better, right? People don't think about it that much, mm. right? That system one, mm. Daniel Kahneman, I think that it just sounds interesting. Yeah. So they sign up for the workshop. I think I think that's something I've, I've, I'm realizing more and more over the years is that every single industry would benefit from having a, a deeper understanding of, of sure. behavioral psychology. But yet behavioral psychology isn't really part of, m- of the majority of industries. Mm. So we're, we're at that point in design I, I know. Of web that we're realizing it and seeing, yeah. okay, what I, when I create something, all this stuff is going on. People's minds are going to be coming into contact with what yeah. I do. So I need to understand more about their minds to, it's to almost, do it almost like if humans use your product, maybe you should understand how humans work. <laughs> and see, for me, because I've been, <laughs> you know, Shocker. I got my PhD in psychology <laughs> so long ago and... It, you know, I'm so immersed in it. Mm. To me, it's like, well, of course. Duh, yeah. yeah, that yeah. makes perfect. Yeah. And, and so I sometimes have to stop and say, well, wait a minute, that's not how most people, you know, they're looking at it from a different point mm. of view. So yes, you absolutely. I, if you're designing something that involves a person, whether that be, you know, software, a website or an app or the bar uh, or a museum, or, you know, then yeah, the more you know about people and what they tend to do, and then the the what we call behavioral economics, which I think is such a weird term because really in the behavioral economics research, like the... De- yeah, it's mostly decision. It's Yeah, making. it's not... Econ- you know, what, where not, does that word economics we, come in, right? Because it's When I studied it, we, we called it um, experimental economics because I, I studied in the okay, early 90s. Sure, and, sure, and, sure, and sure. then there was kind of more... It, was, it wasn't just behavioral economics back then. There was the experimental side. So we run we ran experiments to do with it. I think I think it's economics in the term that it's modeling, and yeah. hopefully you can have math and maybe a touch of game theory. It derives from economics more than anything else. Whereas the, your you know the, the stuff you do derives from, from psychology, psychology, but it's yeah. not exactly the same as. Well, mm. I mean, I see it as you, we, we, in behavioral economics or experimental economics, experimental economics was the testing aspect that we actually applied this with genuine situations. Mm. Right. Um, so right. What happens? What when happens we when this, you, you know, have pri- you know, these p- situations? Yeah. You know, playing yeah. out prisoner's dilemma and actually get you know four people in a room mm. and give them money and right. see what happens. Is it true? And that's that's the full range of economics, right? You have theory. Then you model, then you data set and test your model against the data set, and then you make your changes. Right. You know, so so yeah. from that, mm. so now that when, just because you're applying it now to human action and decisions, it's still basically the same. So that I, I think that's why it kind of makes the most sense to put it in the economic. It's kind of like the the psychology and the neuroscience part of it is what's going on, you know, inside the person. Mm-hmm. And then some of the stuff you bring to bear in mm-hmm. the what we what we call behavioral economics part is what happens in particular situations. Mm. So either you have multiple people together, or mm. even you have one person, but now that person is interacting with 
you know, a system, uh, uh, other people, a situation. And I think of that as the behavioral economics part. So it's a really interesting combination. You know, it's not just... The psychology is what the person, what every single person does that's the same. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the... But but when you have... And the, the economics part is... What is this particular person going to do given these particular How choices okay, in this particular situation? Yeah. How yeah. does the pack behave? Yeah, but yeah. it's but it's variable, right? Mm-hmm. So like each person will behave differently. Whereas in behavioral psychology, you, the, you're, this you're is looking what's the for the same, universal, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone has this everyone's part of their brain, the, the FFA, right. the future form facial area. Yeah, everyone's going to tend faces. to do the same things. So it's an it's an interesting combination. I think it's lent, um, you know, like yesterday's workshop. I think it gives it a lot of depth. So mm. it bring, it's it's more than just, oh, you know, people respond to this color versus that color, or people respond to a face, or people are afraid that you know there's the fear of loss. Mm. It kind of gives it a, an added dimension. And you know, when we're talking about designing stuff, we we usually aren't. You know, these days we're not just designing things that it, one person uses all by themselves, you know, it is mm. part of a larger system. So. Yeah, usually. Can you give us an example then of, of how you would apply something that you learned from your workshop in a web design? Yeah, you want to you take a, what, just one of like the standard, mm. uh, like uh, designing for engagement, like one, maybe one of the seven um, principles of motivation or something? Oh, the gosh, there are so many things. Like seven, my, seven principles my, of motivation. Yes. Um, yes. You made, you have, now you've teased everyone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, yeah. is it principles? I always forget. What yeah, seven, seven principles, seven drivers of motivation. Seven drivers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so we talk, I mean, that the, the workshop we did yesterday is based around this idea that there are, you know, I mean, there's so, you know, there's hundreds of things that might motivate someone to take an action. Oh, yeah. But, um, I, I kind of condensed it into these seven different categories. Mm. So one of them, now, now I have to that's make a, oh, yeah, sure okay. I get them all. Oh, you count it. them that's off it. while I do them. Okay. <laughs> so one of them is uh, we call tricks of, the mind, tricks of the mind. And that has to do with um, how people think and how people make decisions, mm. uh, cognitive biases and that kind of thing. Right. And then there's habits. And then there's rewards. Yep. The desire for mastery. Desire for mastery. Stories. Mm-hmm. And, and I need two more. Uh, instincts. Instincts. And uh, what's the one we're missing? I can't remember. It's people will have to attend your workshop. Oh, yeah, no, they no, find no, out the no, last no. one. No, I'll, re- I'll keep talking, yeah. and it'll come back to me. Yeah. Okay. So okay. So 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 applying like uh, one of those. So so you maybe um, like uh, gamification is a good example. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, gamification is an interesting example yeah. because it crosses over several of those. So you know, gamification was big. I don't know, a couple of years ago, oh, yeah. everyone yeah. got um, really excited. Seriously you know? misunderstood most of the time. And Everybody uh, misunderstood everything and talked about it a lot. Well, the, the idea of gamification is that it's triggering your desire for mastery, right? Mm-hmm. Games, which is one of the strongest drivers. One of the strongest drivers is a desire for mastery. So we all have this oh, yeah. innate desire to learn and grow and mm-hmm. learn new things. And uh, the idea, you know, if you think about a game, any game, whether you, you play online games or whether you play board games, um, you, know, what, you know, what makes it fun? Like what what's fun about a game? Mm-hmm. And... It's usually, when I ask people that, it's usually not, oh, I get rewarded, right? It's usually, oh, well, I get better. I, you know, I, I learned some new techniques, some new mm-hmm. strategies. 
Um, it's fun. Somebody yesterday when we asked him this said it's fun to play with other people. Beat other people. Uh, and somebody said, no, it's <laughs> no, not fun to other people. Well, that <laughs> one person said it's fun to play social and the other person said, no, I want to beat them. You know? but, you're so you're you, wanting to be on the top list of the game. Right, yes. right. Yeah. Get yeah. your initials. So there's all these different, different things that go into it. And interestingly, the research on rewards shows that um, if you, you if you give someone a reward, it it kind of squelches their desire for mastery. Mm. So then they're just doing the activity, whatever it is, whether it's a game or anything else, they're just mm. doing it for the reward. It, mm. they, it stops being intrinsically motivated and just turns mm. into extrinsic, and that's actually not a good thing. Mm. So actually, if you wanted to do gamification well, and I think everybody's just given up on it, but you mm. could do it if you wanted to do it well, you wouldn't use rewards at all. Right. You'd, so in order to encourage the desire for mastery, what you have to do mm. three things, you have to give people autonomy. They have to feel like they have some control over what they're doing and how they're doing it. Mm. Uh, the second thing you have to do is use the right amount of challenge. If it's too easy, then it's they're not, not they don't mm. want to keep going. And if it's too hard, they give up. Mm -hmm. So you've got autonomy. You've got um, challenge. And then the, ne the last thing they need is feedback, but not praise. Because again, praise, if you said, oh, you're doing such a great job, exactly. yeah. that's reward. But oh, you need yeah. feedback on, you know, uh, um, have you have you hit the target? You know, are mm. you moving in the right direction? Mm. Are you learning more? Mm. I use sometimes the example of learning a foreign language. Um, so you need feedback, you know, did you pronounce that correctly? That's mm. the kind of feedback you need. Not mm. like, oh, you're doing such a great job, but did you, you know, are you making progress? So if you do those three things, then people, it's like they want to keep learning. They want to keep learning. So because they realize they're get, they're getting better. They're getting so, better, and yeah. we love to mm. learn new things. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just we're curious animals, yeah. and uh, we like to kind of know what's going on and and feel like we are growing and improving. So the way you would apply that is, let's say you have something that you want people to use, and you want them to be motivated to use it, and so you then decide we're going to use the desire for mastery as our as one of the motivators that we're going to use. And you should correct me if I'm wrong about this. You're doing you're good so far. <laughs> um, and so then you understand the desire for mastery. You understand that gamification, people call it gamification because games have badges and points, and so we're going to have badges and points. But, but really, if you're talking about gamification, it should really be pushing that desire for mastery and then you figure out a way to implement that in your product mm. and hopefully yeah, in the product how are we going to have people feel like they have control mm. how, how are, are we, we going to feedback give them feedback how are we going to show them their progress mm. well what we taught in the workshop is you have to ask a series of questions so first of all the first question is um you know what is this product or situation i'm trying to design for the next question is, who's the target audience? And, and you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, well there's this target audience and there's that target audience. It's mm. like, okay, but start with one. Mm. Like, just pick one, you know, make sure you understand that target audience. Now, the next question is, what does the target audience want to do with this product or in this space? You know, if you're talking about going to the bar, right? Mm. They want to go to the bar, they want to get a drink, they want to socialize with their friends. Or if you're talking about you know, a particular app or they want to uh, see if they can get a good rate on a hotel, right? Mm -hmm. So what is it they want to do? And then the next question is, what is it you want them to do as the owner of the product, um, uh, as the designer of the product? Because interestingly, those two things often don't match, mm -hmm. right? They want to come and see if they can get the best rate for the hotel. 
you want them to book the entire trip. Yeah. Uh, you know, the mm. flight and the hotel and the rental car, right? That They don't come there wanting to do that, but that's what you want them to do. So now we have this interesting gap, mm -hmm. right, between what they want and what you want. So now we know that. Now the next thing is to look at these seven drivers that we went through and, mm. and, and all the things that we talk about and pick, you know, a couple, two, three, four, that you think for this target audience and for what they want to do, and for what you want them to do, which of these strategies is going to be the best, the most effective, and then apply that in mm. into the design. So that's that's what we did in the workshop so, yesterday. So when when you say that um, we need to we need to understand a target audience, so pick one of our target audiences and understand it. What things do I need to have understood? You really need to think about, and this is where the psychology comes in for the, this group. What is going to motivate them? You know, what is it they are trying to achieve? Uh, you know, so for instance. Um, a fear of loss, is that important to them? Mm. Is that something that that uh, you could uh, use to connect with them, to get their interest? Um, are they, uh, you know, are they in, in a rush? Is, are they under stress? Um, how experienced are they with doing this kind of thing in this way? Are they absolutely experts mm. or are they really, really new at it? Uh, what else would you think you'd need to know? Are they doing it alone? Are they doing it with other people, right? Mm. So just kind of understand the context and also understand um, them as much as you can. And sometimes you don't know that and you have to guess and that's why you have to then test, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes you know a lot because they might mm. be an existing customer base mm. that you've worked with for a long time. Oh yeah, because that will make a big difference if they're a new customer compared to an existing customer. Yeah, I mean, and if the this motivators is my, must be. Well, yeah, it's interesting. You know, a lot of times when we're working with a with a client, they'll say, "Oh yeah, we know all about you know our customers. We have all this information. Um, we have all this survey data and all these interviews." And then and then I'll ask, "Okay, so for this product we're designing, it's the same customers?" And they're like. Well, no, actually, what we wanted to do now was bring in a younger group, yeah, you yeah. know, and it's like, okay, so you have so, to throw away all, you know, that's not going to be relevant here. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to me how much, um, you know, they have all this data, but that doesn't necessarily pertain to the project we are working on, yeah. right? I think when I'm doing analysis and stuff, I do reflect on that with the whole how you have new and existing customers or, or people consuming your product or digital mm. thing, how those are often kind of just mixed together in the same bag and they're they're sitting on the same content, they're looking reading the same stuff and everything's designed for all of them because it's like, and it, it kinda doesn't work. work. It can't no. work. Mm. No. We're kind of forced into that compromise, I think, in a lot of digital situations. Every company, you know, they have this. They have their services, they have their brand, and they have what they think is important to people. Hmm. But you know, they don't test that very often. And this company wanted to test like these major, you know, uh, parts of their brand. You know, like we think people love us because you know we provide this and this and this. And they were like, actually maybe that's not true <laughs> you know mm -hmm. it's like so the things that we think are really important do they still think mm -hmm. that that's really important and they were willing to look at that because you'd be amazed at how many companies are like i, I don't want to know you know if it turns out that you know free shipping and free returns 
is what we think is really important to people and it's not you know <laughs> then yeah. what, what the heck are we going to do because yeah. we're building our whole brand on that so um they were they were you know brave and so we did um what i call exploratory um target audience research which is really interesting where it's like it's like doing therapy you know mm-hmm. you just kind of have these deep conversations with people and yes. all kinds of interesting stuff comes out mm. and then and they were very interested in it but then they were kind of like uh-oh <laughs> i find there's a lot people are scared to learn about their target audiences yeah so which then is, they don't want to know yeah, that's yeah. what i you know mm. what you were saying before yeah. it's like okay it's just gonna be easier if we, exactly mm. it's easier for them don't look they're, at their their worldview mm. is maintained and yeah it's more, I, and it's right. more comforting right when your worldview stays the same <laughs> a little bit longer exactly like cognitive biases we talk a lot about on the show uh, oh, you have, yeah. yeah. And and I know that that's something you talk about in yeah. your workshop as well, But and you can use it uh, to your advantage when you're talking about your target groups. But also, I mean, as a designer, you have your own cognitive bias. I mean, you're not yeah. immune oh, to those. No, no. So is that something you talk about? How do I, as a designer, overcome my own biases so that I don't interpret the results in the wrong way? Yeah, I don't think, no, we don't. We didn't talk about no, that. we don't it, talk about any mm-hmm. meta. It, no. Ethics is the only place that yeah. we talk about. But like, it's really true. It's really problems. true. Um, you know, yeah, and it's so funny because people say, well, now that you know about these cognitive mm. biases, then you won't fall into them, right? Mm. And it's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> unfortunately, I, I know about them and I huh. do what everybody well, else does. The, the, the one thing that we did do Actually, we do we do a ton of um, exer- workshop, uh, not exercises, activities. activities. Mm. People are always running around doing stuff mm. in our, a lot of our in our workshops, and so a lot of them actually deal with cognitive bias. And uh, we basically have them do an activity, and then they do it, and then we show this is uh, look. You guys have done it all incorrectly because oh, of your do the reveal. Bias. Yeah, we yes. do a yes. lot right. of um, yeah. so and that's nice. really and the like, way. Oh. Yeah, and yeah. so I think that yeah. that helps people uh, yeah. start to understand. Yeah. Oh, Oh man, I mm. fell right into that yeah. one, didn't I? Yeah, and we had a yeah, we yeah. have a whole in this workshop we taught yesterday we have a whole series of these. Yeah, it's a lot of bait and switch, right? Where mm. they think they're doing this, <laughs> and then the finish thing is like actually, actually, you you were only doing this because of the cognitive bias. Mm. This is what you missed. Yeah, because we've got this. Uh, it's like a three. It's a three layered thing. You've got yourself as a as a designer, so you you need to understand the cognitive biases in order to, to avoid them or make use of them um, in the work you're doing. Right. Then you've got your own cognitive That's biases right. to battle with during this little process. Mm. And then you have to communicate what you've designed to someone, whether it's management, whether it's yeah. some kind of stakeholder yeah. or, um, or, des- or a, a exactly. developer, who have also got cognitive biases. That's right. So, That's so right. you need to <laughs> kind of, you know, you need to play them at that point as well as in the design. And well, you know, we one person we we did have one team yesterday in the class, and they um, asked because they they do consulting, and we were talking about we we had them uh, in the class. They actually made these adorable little origami. Oh. We yeah. were um, we were trying to elicit. This was it was actually the first time we'd ever done this exercise, and it was mm. it was the most complicated exercise we'd ever done, mm. and it it some magically worked. Uh, there's a th- there's a, there's a thing called the IKEA effect. Which, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which we which did not do because it was Sweden. It's just, it's <laughs> like it's just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, right, and so we were trying to elicit that, uh, and then we broke them into three groups. And in theory, the the group that kept their or, or uh, original origami that they had made would then uh, 
value it at a higher level. So. Yeah, because that's the IKEA effect. That if you've participated yeah, if in you've, building something, if you've, ma- if you've made it yourself, mm. you you value it more. Yeah, stronger attachment to it. Yeah. So yeah, so we so we had them all build it, and we had three groups, and two groups brought their stuff up. And one group went back, and then we had a series. We did we did like a price solicitation stage where they had to decide if they wanted to keep money or keep their origami, mm. and magically it all worked. In in both of the exercises exactly. we did with price, it was like exactly. picture perfect with the you know the right ratios. Oh wow. So the people who got to keep their own origami is there was no price at which they were going to trade that in. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was was interesting. But one of the teams asked me after that exercise, um, they said, you know, we do consulting and uh, would, would, does this mean that if we have our clients in during the design Mm. and they design with us, would that would they mm. then be more attached and have more mm. value than if we we design and get feedback mm. from them and then we iterate mm. and get more feedback and i said yes, yes. absolutely because mm. that's going to be their design so now when they they're going to fight for it they're going to have more buy in it's going to get through the whole you know mm. process much more easily and that's mm. that's why so i think that's an example too of of you know being able to apply it not just what are the cognitive biases of the end user mm. that we have to build in? But, you know, how can we do that in our own design process? Mm. Yeah. yeah. That, that reminds me as well about the coaching aspect, that, that you're, you're kind of coaching those stakeholders um, into right. understanding your design by making them feel like they've mm. come to the decision themselves right. or, or come they, to the it's same their design, right? It's the yeah. oldest yeah. consulting trick in the book. Mm. You just have <laughs> yep. whoever you're trying to get the buy-in <laughs> think it's their idea. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I thought that was, you know, the, the cognitive bias section that we did, um, uh, I, it, which was the newest part. Uh, well, it was just I a collection was, of interesting research. was really fun. Because you can't go mm. through all of them. No, I mean, uh, yeah, you, you can't keep, I mean, yeah. what, there's 100 plus. Mm. I, I know. Mean, you right. can't have those no. in your head and be aware of them all the no, time. We, and did, we did like, I think, what, 10 or 12? If that well, some of yeah. them are basic are like kind of the same. Like fear of loss, turn like combined with something else mm. turns into a bunch of cognitive biases. Mm. So you can kind of combine them combined. together. Yeah. I mean, in your workshop, you learn so many powerful techniques that can be used in design to. I'm not going to say manipulate again. I jumped out hard in the in the beginning. <laughs> you can say but, it, yeah. But <laughs> but yeah, engage people and perhaps against their own will sometimes influence and, and i know that you have this section where you talk about ethics and mm-hmm. it's you had some like recommendations for how, how how can you think about that how can you tackle that so you don't go the evil way uh, I, I know that know. I read yeah. someone's notes actually from your workshop. Oh yeah, yeah, that's and right. There was something Did about they... look at the extremes, and, and that wasn't a recommendation. Yeah. yeah. So I we had a whole uh, a far too long podcast mm. in which we I think <laughs> the title is developing a framework for like a methodology for <laughs> a framework for a methodology <laughs> for <laughs> thinking about. I, I can sum I can sum it up really quickly. Um, basically, uh, what you want to look at is. Um, the extremes and how much harm it's doing to people on the extremes. So if you think about people who are, for example, addic- addicted to gambling, um, or if you make uh, some sort of app or video game that where like 98% of the company's revenue comes from these people who have become addicted to this mobile game and are spending tons on the ad. The so ad the ads. idea is that most of the people... The, the effect for them is the, the any negative effect for them is minimal mm. or outweighed by any positive effect to their lives. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so, but at the extremes, it's really bad. Like people are spending like, you know, tens of thousands. You're of making your money from mm. the people at the extremes oh, yeah, who are okay. addicted to so it. So that's part one. And so basically, if you want to do the formula, right, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the ne- negativity times, uh, uh, times uh, impact of the, ne- of, the, of the extremes. And then plus the neg- negativity and the magnitude of for the, the median person. Right. So, so is, is our design. So think of, for example, a very annoying pop-up banner ad. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, it's negative. It's not like the, it's not like, you know, destroying families, but it's pretty, it's a pretty negative, annoying experience for everyone Mm because you're grabbing their attention and they can't, they can't get away. Um, But, you know, the extremes, not so much. It's basically just for the median person. It's just kind of annoying for everyone. So, so you, you add together the effect of the extremes with effect for the median to kind of get an overall uh, impact of is this unethical? Mm. And so it's it's the combination of, of those or, two But factors. it could be either or, right? I mean, you could have a situation where actually for the median, it's it's not bothering them, but it's so bad for the extremes. Yeah, sure. That sure. you decide yeah, the, you know, it outweighs it's, the... it's unethical just because of what we're doing to the Mm -hmm. extremes. And what Guthrie did in the workshop yesterday that I thought was interesting was he posed a series of questions, you know? He's like, okay, what what about this? Mm -hmm. So if you were designing this and this was the effect, you know, is that, would you consider that ethical Mm -hmm. or not ethical? People in Sweden, very strong moral back backbone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so they were they people were all saying you know no i wouldn't do that no i wouldn't do that mm-hmm. and in the u.s i think you'd have people going yeah sure yeah we do that all <laughs> the time oh, not really? a problem yeah right wouldn't, yeah. right yeah 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 um well and, and it's, he, you kept waiting for when were the hands yeah, was, going up and they weren't yeah. going up at all yeah because you know you start with like um your your boss has told you you need to design like a slot machine where the goal is literally to do whatever is possible to make people give you money by pressing a button, mm-hmm. right? Like, is it, it, would would you f- like feel completely fine doing that? And like, no one raised their hand. I, I'll just say one more thing about my part of the ethics that I thought was really fun. I can't take credit for it. Um, I think Spencer said it on our podcast, and he may have stole it from somewhere else. I don't know, but it's called um, the the race to the bottom of the brainstem. Right now, there basically a lot of industries their whole economy is just based on attention Mm. and on views and clicks and likes and stuff and so in order to get there whoever is racing towards the bottom to get your attention the hardest and maybe the most unethically Mm. is going to be the winner it seems to be accelerating which is why ethics is now such a very hot topic exactly Mm -hmm. thank you both for spending some time with us yes it was great So right at the end of the of the recorded part of the interview, there we got into um, um, oh, the the Spencer Darrell quote, "Race to the bottom of the brainstem." Mm-hmm. Um, but after we stopped recording, we continued and we 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 had a really excellent discussion um, about the kind of like why don't we have the um, the 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 ethical codes of conduct and the licensing or the kind of the governing bodies for design like there are in so many other um, professional industries such as psychology medicine we even talked about this with with Mike um, Montero um, a few weeks ago there's so many medicine medicine architecture um, law, law um, all of these things have professional bodies um, and I pose the question to go three why 
have they got them, but not us? Mm. And he replied back and, and said, well, you know, they hadn't reached, we, don't, we haven't reached crisis point. Mm. You know, most of those, most of those industries, they've, um, we speculated on, they, they, they got their um, codes of conduct and so on um, because it became necessary to, to show the difference between the good ones and the bad ones. You know, if you were the if you were the kind of um, you know the, the the doctor who was killing patients and you know you were mm. chopping them up and not healing them, you were just kind of you know getting rid of it. We're just opening people's yeah, heads uh, and poking around in their brains with sticks. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's these situations of here where even from crisis point, people are dying, people are getting hurt. Um, you know, in architecture, buildings are falling down, people are dying because buildings are falling down. You need to then stop the arch- you know the people doing jobs that cause injury, harm, death, misery. Mm. Um, you know, families to fall apart. All this has to stop. We're not bad enough yet. So what you're saying, we need to get a lot, lot worse before we get to a place where we can have ethical conduct. The implication of the conversation we had with, with Guthrie and Susan after recording was we unfortunately need to get worse before we get better because without the crisis point, we're not going to be motivated as a, as a world, as an industry um, to do it. We've got the sad example this weekend of um, in London the the block of uh, the tower block uh, that tragically burnt down. Mm-hmm. Um, lots and lots of people are left homeless. Um, at the, this moment, there's like 17 people have lost their lives. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a terrible tragedy, um, and it, the initial indications are that the fire spread so quickly because of the cladding they put on the outside of the building. It wasn't fire resistant. Now, in the US and some other countries, they banned this material, but in the UK, there hadn't really been a need to ban it. Mm-hmm. There hadn't been the crisis point. People hadn't died. Yeah. It's not going to take very long at all now before they put legislation in place that bans that material. It could have been this, banned before, yeah. but it wasn't. Why wasn't it? Because nothing had happened. Yeah, this is so sad because it sort of sounds then, this is the human condition. We don't do anything concrete until something really, really bad happens. Uh, and my suggestion then would be to let's lift all the examples of everything bad that has happened to show how big of a problem this is already. But you'll still have people that will say, that will come back to you and go, it isn't really that big a problem. Even though you're lifting examples, they'll say, well, that's just three companies. There are five million companies. We have to show that people have died because of UX. And I'm, I'm pretty certain that a lot of people have died because of bad UX. Or burnt out, or but I'm, yeah. I'm I'm concerned that we have to we have to get to the point where many people are dying because of bad design. You've got that serious face now. Oof. I have Ooh. because I think it, because it's worrying me a little bit that we do need to go. We need to dive deeper into the ship before we can crawl out of it. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you aren't already a subscriber, then please click and add us. Show notes and all our previous episodes can be found on uxpodcast.com. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Knock, knock. Who's there? Spell. Spell who? W-H-O. (laughs) We're so bad. (laughs) Ha <laughs>